Hi, I'm Jennifer Matthewson Spear, and you have joined us today for a Word of Joy podcast. We finish up Philippians chapter 4 tonight. We're going to start in verse 10. Going back and just reviewing this week when I was studying, I, I just thought, wow, how much can you pack into one book, one letter? Certainly, Philippians is a book about joy, and yet it is um, more than that. It is about this surrender to Christ. It is, it is leaning into him in obedience and trust so that he has preeminence in every area of our lives. And that is where the joy comes from. Joy is not manufactured. It is not happiness. It is not based on our circumstances. But it is a work of the Holy Spirit in each of us that are believers in Christ. And we've looked at Paul's circumstances in chapter 1. The critics, the crisis, the chains, and how God has used that. And none of that hinders the joy in Paul. Because they are not the source of his joy. And then in chapter 2, we, we saw that difficult people in the church and out there can sometimes rob us of joy. And Paul says, well, we have to have this mindset of Christ, this attitude of Christ. In chapter 3, we saw the tension that we sometimes feel between being a citizen of heaven and a citizen of this earth and the pull of this earth. And we, we understand that we're in a race that we're to persevere, that we're to endure, that we are to press on. We are not to keep looking back lest we stumble, but we are keeping our eye on the prize and our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to chapter 4, and he reiterates that all of that in two words. Stand firm. Stand firm. Persevere. Stand firm in what? The truth. The truth of God's word. The truth of who God is. The enemy would like for us to doubt the character of God, the word of God, and the heart of God. And we must stand firm in the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ and all that is available to us in Christ. Stand firm. And as we are standing firm, we have available to us the peace of God, the power of God, and the provision of God. And last week we talked about the peace of God. That right praying, right thinking, right living that he talks about in verses 6 through 9. And tonight we begin in verse 10. And we look at the power of God. I'm going to read 10 through 13. When you get to 13, you're going to recognize it. Many of you know this verse. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Remember that Epaphroditus, a member of this congregation, a member of this church in Philippi, has been a messenger to Paul who is in prison in Rome. He is in his own rented quarters, but he is under house arrest, chained 24-7 to the Praetorian Guard. And the church in Philippi has sent supplies to him through Epaphroditus. 
Now, the prison system in Rome is very much like the prison system today in many parts of the world. If you want food, someone has to bring you food. If you want clean clothes, someone has to bring it to you. The prison system does not provide anything. It is just a house of death where you await to be executed. And so Epaphroditus brings this, these gifts from Philippi. Whether it was actual money or supplies, we don't know. But Paul is thanking them for their gift. And he says, I'm thanking you for your gift because you have tried to send me a gift on different occasions and you weren't able to get it to me and now your interest has been revived and there was opportunity and he's so thankful. But then he kind of takes a step back in verse 11. He says, not that I speak from want. In other words, he is saying, I don't want you to think I'm just loving on you guys because I need your stuff. He says, I am not speaking from want. He's thankful. But look what he says in verse 11. It is a spectacular verse. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. There's three words that just popped out to me as I begin to study that. The word learned, content, and circumstances. We're going to look at all three of those words. But that word content is one of the Greek words that is such a picture word. And Paul is very precise in using that word. In classical Greek, the word content means contained. And a secular Greek would have used the word content to mean a person who has resources on the inside so that he does not have to depend on a substitute from the outside. In other words, it is a, a classical secular Greek would have used this word to mean someone who is self-sufficient, a self-made person. A person who doesn't really need anything other than his own resources. And yet Paul is very particular to use this particular word. He does this often when he writes. He takes a secular word and he imposes, he uses it in a biblical way. And it's what he does here because nowhere in Paul's writings and nowhere in the New Testament are we ever encouraged to be self-sufficient. But he uses that word. So what does he mean? He says, Christ in me is sufficient. I'm not self-sufficient. The resources are not within me of my own doing, but Christ in me. It is his resources. And he is indeed the greatest resource we could ever have. We are not dependent on circumstances, on health, on money, on relationships, on power, on prestige. We are dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ who lives within us. That is our dependency. That is our resource. And he says, I have learned to be content to be sufficient, that Christ is sufficient in all, every circumstance. I thought back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. If you have your Bible, go back and turn there. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul talks about circumstances in chapter 1, and here he is again talking about circumstances. You remember if you were here that first or second week, we talked about what were his circumstances, 
And we took 30 minutes going back and looking at the book of Acts to see what his circumstances actually were. And he had been in and out of prison for four to five years. He had been hounded by the Jews. He had been neglected by the Romans. And now he had been shipwrecked. And he finally ends up at Rome. He's in house arrest. And he says in verse 12, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He was chained to the praetorian guard. They were the inner circle, the inner elite of Caesar's army. And the gospel had penetrated into that section of the army. And many of them had come to know Christ. And Paul looked at his circumstances, his chains, as an opportunity for the gospel. He says, my circumstances don't have anything over on me. And now he says it again in verse 11, chapter 4, in a different way. I've learned to be content no matter what circumstances I am in. Circumstances do not control his destiny. They do not control the outcome of his life. They don't control what happens to him. Christ does. And he views his circumstances through Christ. Circumstances don't get to rule his life. Not his past circumstances, not his present circumstances, and even not his future circumstances. It is well with his soul, no matter what the circumstances. I was studying that, and I thought of Horatio Spafford. He was a lawyer and a real estate entrepreneur in Chicago. In the late 1800s and in 1871, the Chicago fire wiped out most of his real estate holdings. In that same year, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Two years later, 1873, he decided to take a vacation with his family, his wife, his four daughters, and he had booked a passage to, from New York to England. But something came up and he wasn't able to go right away, but he planned to meet them just a few days later. He put his wife and his four daughters on that ship and somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean they collided with another vessel and their ship went down. 276 people died. All four of his daughters died. His wife was one of 47 people that was rescued. She was taken to Wales. She sent a message to him, saved alone. They moved her to England, and he immediately, on receiving that message, booked a passage to meet only his wife in England. And as he crossed the Atlantic, the captain of the ship came to him and told him the approximate area where his daughters drowned. And that night in his cabin, Horatio Spafford penned the words to a hymn we all know and love. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How can a man who lost a son and four daughters and all of his possessions write a song about it being well with his soul? Because nothing but Christ is sufficient. And he knew Christ. 
And Christ was enough in the trials. Christ is enough in the grief, in the loss. Christ was enough. And it could be well with his soul, no matter what his circumstances. And Paul is saying, I have learned to be Christ in me sufficient, no matter what my circumstances. But the third word I see in that verse is the word learned. Paul learned over the years of his life. It wasn't something he just got all in one big old lump. He didn't just learn it all in one day. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, he tells us the variety of kinds of circumstances that he has actually lived through that have taught him these truths. Look what he says in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means and how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. He gives us six words there. They're grouped in, in twos, and they are opposites in every grouping. He says, I know how to live in humble means and prosperity. That's a group, but they're opposites. He says, I know how to be filled and how to go hungry. That's a group, but they're opposites. I know how to live in abundance and in suffering need. That's a group and they're opposites. When I look at the negative, what we would consider the negative in that list, humble means hungry, suffering need. Do you understand that we learn more about the Lord in those kind of circumstances than we ever do in prosperity, being filled and abundance. You learn more about who God is when you go through difficult times. The things I have learned about the Lord through death and sorrow and prodigals and cancer and all the things that have been in my life cannot, it, it is monumentous compared to the things I've learned when life is just going right along and just, just lickety split, everything's good. You see, I need God in those difficult times and I call out for him and I seek him but in the good times, I often forget to do that. You know, the Lord knows we're like that because when Israel, long ago in the Old Testament, when they were about to enter the land of promise, you know what God said to them? He said, you're going to go into the land of promise. And you're going to drink from wells you didn't dig. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to dwell cities you didn't build the walls. You're going to eat from trees that you didn't plant. And he said, your tendency will be to forget about me. And they did. When we are blessed and when things are abundant, our tendency is to forget about the Lord. And Paul's saying, I have had to learn that even in the good times that Christ is sufficient. We kind of know he's sufficient in the bad times, but in the good times, he is sufficient. And he says, in living in all of these different kinds, these variety of circumstances in my life, I have learned this contentment. Ladies, we are all in the journey. Remember what he said to us in chapter 1, verse 6? I am confident of this, this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're all in process. We're in this sanctification journey. We haven't learned it all yet. He says in, in chapter 3, I haven't arrived yet, but I'm pressing on. I'm still learning. That's how he say, That's what he's saying about the circumstances of life. And he says, I've learned the secret. What's the secret? 
In the ancient Greek religion, there were always secrets and mysteries and mystical things. And that was very much a part of Greek mythology and the ancient Greek religion. And Paul uses a word there that the secular Greeks would have taken notice of. I learned the secret. But it's not a secret that we can't tell. It's not a secret that we whisper in one another's ears. When he uses that word secret, it means something you cannot know unless it is revealed. And God has revealed the secret to him of living in all of these different kinds of circumstances. What's the secret? The secret is verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. That's the secret. That's the secret to humble means, prosperity, filled and hungry, abundance and suffering. The secret is to do all things through Christ, who gives him strength, who gives us strength. Paul is saying you and I can live victoriously. We can live contented no matter what our circumstances because Christ lives within us. And he strengthens us, as Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 says, he strengthens us in the inner man. That's why you can see some of the physically weak, frail, maybe even sick people that are living for the Lord. They are radiant and they are even content in their illness. Why? Because the Spirit of God works on the inside. It is not behavior modification. It is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder and do better, but it is Christ in you that is sufficient. And when Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, many times, many times we, we apply that verse to things we want to accomplish. I, I can remember telling my children when they wanted to do something, I would say, well, you know, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. And, and, and there, that's true, there, that's, that's not a, a, a misuse of that verse, and yet Paul is talking about, I can live through anything. Not just surviving, but as an overcomer, I can live through anything because Christ in me is enough. And that verse is also saying, yes, we can do anything that Christ asks of us. It's not something we can just come up with our big plans for God and then say, oh yeah, because you know I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, what if he didn't ask you to do it? We've just been presumptuous and come up with a big plan for God. But anything that Christ asks you to do, anything that he directs you to, anything that he leads you to do, you will be able to do it in his strength. But go back to what we have been talking about this entire book, that little phrase we keep using over and over and over, dependent responsibility. We are completely dependent upon the power of Christ in us to accomplish whatever he wants us to do, to live in the way he wants us to live. We're dependent upon his power in us and his strength. But guess what? We have to trust him enough to obey him. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It is God at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. You see, the Spirit of God goes to work in us, giving us even the desire to obey him. And then when we make the move to obey him, we trust him enough to obey him, then the Holy Spirit equips us and strengthens us and enables us to obey. But we have the responsibility 
to trust him and take that step of obedience. God always empowers us to live in the way that he has commanded us to live, but we have a responsibility in that, and that is to trust him enough to obey him. This Christian life is a life of faith, and faith does not mean some big leap in the dark. It is not for the super Christian. It's not for the people that have great spiritual gifts. The faith life, the Christ life, is for every single believer. It is not doing big, theatrical, dramatic things for God. It is taking the step in the light that you have, a step of obedience. Doing the next step of obedience, the very next thing. Trusting that he will equip you and enable you to continue. That's the life of faith. That's the life we are called to. My God shall supply. No, not there yet. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you remember that little glove example we've been using? The dog got my glove. (laughs) I I don't know where it is right now. (laughs) So... You remember our glove? Just pretend you see it. Just a little glove. I say to that glove, hey, glove, rejoice in your difficult circumstances. Hey, glove, persevere. Hey, you little glove there, just keep going. Live for Jesus. Run the race. That glove can't do it. But if I put a hand in the glove, and the hand is the Lord Jesus, The glove can do anything the hand wants it to do. Christ in you. He's the hand. When he says, run with perseverance, you can do it because Christ is in you. Rejoice in your difficult circumstances. You can do it because Christ is sufficient in you. Live in obedience according to God's standards. You can do it because Christ is in you. I can do all things through Christ. My circumstances do not dictate my victory. Christ does. And then Paul goes on, verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. They were such a giving church. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. I have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He views their gift to him in two ways. He views it as an investment and as a sacrifice. Typically, when we use the word investment, we are talking about a monetary investment, but he's not talking about just a money investment. And typically, when we talk about investment, we are expecting to have a return on the investment. And he says, you will have a return on your investment in the kingdom of God. But let's be real careful right here. Because there is a false doctrine out there called the prosperity gospel. That says if you get a dollar, if you give a dollar, you get two dollars. Maybe three or four or five. So give as many dollars as you want because God is going to bless you with more. And he's going to bless you with money and he's going to bless you with health. And that's an indication that you are living within the grace of God. But I want to tell you that is a false doctrine. When we invest in the kingdom of God, 
God is not obligated to return that in like kind. Just because you give money doesn't mean you're going to get money. There are many things that you can invest in the kingdom of God, and there are many things that come back as a return on your investment. I told you last week about living with my grandmother, and I loved my grandmother. I love my grandma and my granddaddy, Bill and Opal Matthias. They lived in Pensacola, Florida. She was 16, and he was 27 when they got married. He would be in jail now. They had eight surviving children. My mother is the oldest one. She had a sister and six brothers. Six brothers are still living. My granddaddy was in the Merchant Marines, and then he worked at the shipyards after he got out of the Merchant Marines. And, and my grandmother never finished high school, and she stayed at home, and she raised all those kids. And they lived in that little wood frame house that I lived in for so many decades, I couldn't begin to tell you how long they lived there. And, and as long as I knew them, I knew one thing, they loved God, and they didn't have two nickels to rub together. But I also knew that when we would go to Pensacola, Florida every year to see my grandparents and, and to stay with him, I knew that in the week that we were there, there was going to be a crowd of people in that house all the time. That my uncles that lived close by and their wives and their kids were going to be there and, and their kids were going to be there. All 21 of my first cousins would somehow be in and out of that house. And there would be people from church because my grandmother played the organ and the piano for decades at her church. My granddaddy played the violin. He was in charge of the bus ministry. They loved God. They loved people. They... Everywhere they went, they just were overflowing with Christ. And I knew in that little wood frame house when we were visiting, my grandmother was going to sit down at the piano and we were all going to break out in song. And we were going to stand around, and oh, however many of us were there, a dozen or so of us, and we would just sing. And if it was a Saturday night, we'd watch Lawrence Welk. And if it was Sunday morning, we'd watch the Gospel Jubilee. There was always music in that home. And there was always Christ in that home. But I remember when I was just old enough to start listening in on the adults' conversation, and it was interesting to me. I heard my grandmother talking to my dad at the kitchen table in that little wood frame house. And her heart was so heavy, and she said, Heywood, that's my daddy. She said, all these years, all these years we've served the Lord. All these years we've invested our lives. She said, and we have nothing material." My daddy, and he was such a wise man, and I just remember him saying, Oh, Opal, oh, Mom, he called her Mom. Oh, Mom, there's other ways to get a return on your investment. And you know, even today, that side of the family gathers on most Thanksgivings, and there's probably 75, 80, 90 of us that come together. Of those eight children... All of them were believers in Christ. All of them married believers in Christ. Many of them are in ministry. Of those 21 grandchildren, all of them are believers. Most of them are married to believers. And all of them on some level are in ministry, either in the local church or as a vocation. It goes on to great-grandchildren and spouses, and it filters out. And when you look at that family, that legacy that my grandma and my granddaddy invested in the kingdom of God, they didn't just have an impact on Pensacola, Florida. They have touched this entire world through the family they have raised. 
Their investment could not be counted in dollars and cents and money in a bank account, but it is investment in the lives of people. And I guarantee you, it will go on until Christ comes back and their reward is great, not because they were rich in money, but because they were rich in God's love. There is a return on what we invest in the kingdom of God. And some of you are blessed to be able to give financially. And some of you are blessed with words of encouragement and time and prayer and service. And we all have abilities to invest in the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, when you invest, there's a return on it. But don't you for one minute get lost in this prosperity gospel that the return is somehow connected to health and wealth. It's just connected to Jesus. And he is thankful that they have invested. And he not only sees it as an investment that will have a spiritual return on it, but he sees it as a sacrifice. And he is talking about that Old Testament picture of when the priest went in, there was incense and it was an aroma that went up. They said into the nostrils of God and God was pleased with the sacrifice. He's saying God is pleased with your sacrifice. He is pleased with your investment in this kingdom of Christ. And then he says, verse 19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He says, my God, it's personal. This is not some faraway, fickle God who is just trying to make you miserable. This is a personal God who loves you, who cares about you, who sees you, who knows you. It is my God. And he shall supply all your needs. It is providential. That word providential means to see beforehand. God sees your needs before you ever see your needs. He knows your needs before you ever know your needs. And in his providence, he is moving to meet your needs before they ever even reach your heart and your mind. He knows what you need. And he is moving to meet those needs. And do you understand that our needs are just not material needs? Sometimes I do need tires on the car, but sometimes I need peace of mind a whole lot more than I need tires on the car. I have emotional needs, spiritual needs, just like you. I have needs of the soul, of the mind. I have needs for healing in my heart and sometimes in my body. I have material needs from time to time. I have all kinds of needs. And God is moving to meet my needs. And if we in this country especially go around comparing our finances to one another, we're, we're always going to come up short in some way. We're always going to see someone who has more than we have. And God calibrates differently than that. He's not comparing the size of our houses or the, the depth of our bank account, but the needs of our heart, and he is supplying those needs. And he says, our, my God shall supply all your needs. And I love this phrase, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you would underline in your Bible that little phrase, according to. It means in proportion to. He is supplying our needs in proportion to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Riches and glory in Christ Jesus is more vast than any of us can even fathom. But he is 
meeting our needs in proportion to that. Now, let me just give you a little practical example of that. If someone walked into this room who was very wealthy and they looked at you and they said, I want to give you a gift out of my wealth. And you know how wealthy that person is. You'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, that, that sounds good to me. And they look in their wallet and they take out $5 bill and they hand it to you. That is out of their wealth, isn't it? Certainly it is. What if that same person came in and you know how wealthy that person is and that person looked at you and said, I want to give you a monetary gift in proportion to my wealth. Wow. That's different than just out of my wealth. You see, God is not meeting our needs out of his riches. He is meeting our needs in proportion to them. He is not meeting our needs by dipping a thimble into a shallow well and just drizzling it on us to make sure that we stay tied to him. He is scooping up bucket loads of blessings out of an infinite sea and dousing us moment by moment. He is meeting our needs, supplying our needs in proportion to his riches and glory. All of our needs. All of our needs. And this is what we experience in this Christian life as we are surrendered, as we are standing firm in the truth, as we are persevering in the race, as we are running according to God's standard, living God's truth, empowered by God's spirit. We get to experience this. <coughs> Excuse me, what a privilege. What a privilege to run. <coughs> now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know I always skip these verses because it's just Paul saying goodbye. Right? Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, brethren who are with me, greet you. Don't you kind of read those verses like that? I, I do every time. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This man in chains, chained to a guard, God has somehow used to permeate the household of Caesar and the gospel has reached them and their believers his circumstances did not dictate his destiny his ministry his joy or his life Christ in him did ladies there's joy in surrender it's a paradox of the Christian faith because so many times we think surrender is to be held captive to lose. And in the Christian life, it is to be held captive. It is to lose. It is to lose myself, to die to self, to gain Christ, to be held captive by him. Elizabeth Elliot said, to be Christ captive is to be perfectly free. And when we experience this kind of freedom in surrender, there is joy joy and peace two things we can't explain very well 
but they're there, a work of the Spirit within us. I hope that these eight weeks have made you hungry to know more. That this just hasn't been an hour of showing up and hearing a few stories and being entertained, but that the Word of God has permeated your heart and your mind, and it is indeed transformational and encouraging as you persevere in running the race, surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ who lives in you and who is sufficient. Run with joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth. Thank you for Christ who lives in every believer who is sufficient for all things, all circumstances, who supplies our needs, who enables us to live as he has called us to live. Father, thank you. Now may we be encouraged by your spirit to run this race with great joy, a privilege to run, keeping our eye on the prize. Thank you for these ladies. Thank you for the privilege of teaching your word. Father, may I be the greatest learner of them all. As you transform me, transform us day by day into the likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today for this Word of Joy podcast. If you would like to know more about the ministry of Word of Joy or you would like to know more about the resources that are available, just take a look at our website at www.wordofjoy.org.